the stinky job in the first century was to be a slave. The Apostle Paul told slaves, even in the first century, if they got a chance to be free, to take it. But he didn't tell Christian slaves to rise up and revolt against their masters. Instead, he spoke to both slaves and masters about what it meant to be submitted to the Spirit of Christ. If you change slave to employee and master to boss in Ephesians chapter 6, I believe you uncover how we can attract others to Jesus in our marketplace. The cleaner of the portage on and Dave's story discovered this power. Let's see if we can do the same. Our study with Dave Wurtson is in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Bob Record and Randy Singer are two guys that are involved in missions. Interesting enough, they wrote a book called Made to Count, discovering what God wants you to do with your life. And almost all of us have the idea, well, if you go to Albania, you're really going to serve the Lord. And that's a special slice of life, and that's where you really worship Jesus. Let's suppose you're working on a construction site. You know, that's not exactly serving Jesus. And what they wrote about is that just the opposite is really true. In fact, they begin their book with a smelly story. They describe a guy named Al who's building a house. And some of you have been there. And as often happens, as they're building the house, the, the project starts to go into the tank. I mean, the, the subs aren't showing up on time. The rain's been coming. The place is a mud hole. And to make matters really worse, the Portageon hasn't been cleaned in centuries. And the sweet aroma is wafing out through the entire construction site. Suddenly, about 9 o'clock in the morning, as the sun begins to blaze down upon this construction site, all the carpenters and electricians that did show up hear this blaring music coming from this truck. This old truck comes rumbling down the street to the construction site. This big old burly guy gets out of the truck. He's got tattoos all over him and everything. And with a great big smile, he smiled at all the construction workers. They see him grab all of his cleaning supplies. And then they can't believe it. He actually enters the death zone. These guys can't get within 20 feet of this portageon, and suddenly this big old burly guy descends into this territory. And they hear, I mean, it sounds like a bomb exploded in this portageon. It's like the whole thing is alive. But instead of the incredible odor of you know what moving through the entire construction site, a sweet smell begins to fill the air. These guys can't imagine what's going on here. This big guy gets out. He gives a big smile to all the construction workers. He said, you know, he said, the last guy that was supposed to be cleaning this place did a terrible job. He got fired, and I've taken over his responsibility. And I want all of you guys to know that from here on out, this place will be like Mr. Clean cleaned it. And I'm here to serve you. He jumped in his truck, and as he began to roll up the window and the music began to thunder from the truck again, one of the carpenters yelled out and said, Man, wait a minute, I want to ask you a question. How in the world do you ever, how in the world do you ever clean portageons like that? And the other thing I want to ask you is, why do you do it? And he rolled down his window and stuck his big head out of the truck and said, Well, that's an easy one. You see, I'm serving the Lord. And I do it to bring praise to him. And he rolled the window up and he rolled away. 
doing a smelly job. In the first century, the smelliest job there was was to be a slave. One of the things that you cherish is that you can get up tomorrow morning, you can travel where you want to travel, you can work what you want to do. If you don't like your job, if you can find another one, you can get that. You can curse the president or you can praise the president. You have freedom of speech and and live in a country where you have those kind of freedoms, the freedom of speech, freedom of, of enterprise, freedom of religion, freedom of worship. You can gather together here if you want to go to a Mormon church, you want to go to an Islamic mosque, if you want to go to a Jewish synagogue, you can do any, in fact, you can do it all in one weekend if you want to. That's the freedom that you have as Americans. If you want to convert, in other words, if you're Islamic in our country and you want to become a believer in Jesus, you can do that. And you might face some ostracism from your family, but you're not going to get thrown in jail for it. You're not going to get killed for it. Those are the precious freedoms as Americans today that we should celebrate. And I pray that every one of you will take some time to thank God and to thank Jesus that you have that kind of a freedom. There's no land on earth. I've traveled to Portugal, France, Germany, Argentina, Brazil, been in Poland. I was in Poland before the walls came down. There's nothing like being in an Eastern European communist country. And then when we landed back in the United States, everyone starts singing God Bless America like it just sang spontaneously because you don't understand how precious your freedoms are till you're someplace that doesn't have them. But I want to talk to you this morning about a greater freedom. Now, the Apostle Paul did tell you that if you were a slave in the first century and you had the opportunity to get free, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, by all means, get free. So the Apostle Paul wasn't against social advancement and getting a higher position. But the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 says something really incredible. He didn't tell the slaves. In fact, as he spoke to the congregation and wrote the letter of Ephesians to the congregation, about a third, if it followed the rest of the Roman Greek world, about a third of the people in the congregation were slaves. And because Christianity tended to attract the lower portion of society, especially about, about the 50s A.D., Probably close to half of the audience that Paul was speaking to were slaves. And then there were masters mixed in. Now you can imagine a congregation where you have slaves and masters together. We're still in the household code as we look at Ephesians 6 today. And the Apostle Paul talked to husbands about their responsibilities. He talked about wives about their responsibilities. He talked about children about their responsibilities. And then he talks to slaves about their responsibilities and masters about their responsibilities. And the incredible thing the Apostle Paul talks to us is that real freedom, real freedom is not doing what every one of you think. Every one of you think that real freedom for me is to do what I want to do, to have nobody telling me what to do, and not have to listen to anybody, and for me to be able to get up in the morning and I decide what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go, and I'm going to live my life totally for me. And I'm going to find fulfillment in me. It's just bred inside of every one of us this morning. There's a part of us that says that's where you're going to be free. And also, as you climb up that freedom, the higher you can get, if you can get far away from Port-a-Johns, if you can get far away from the Clorox bottle, if you can get far away from cleaning agents so that somebody else has to take care of everything from dirty diapers to sweeping and mopping floors to vacuuming, to cleaning up at the church after 400 kids have totally demolished the church, the farthest you can get away from those menial things, that's when you're going to find real happiness. And I want to tell you this morning that just the opposite is true. 
A lot of you are wondering, like, how do I really make an impact for Jesus? My nephew wrote me an email. He's in the heart of Manhattan at Fordham University. He's learning to be an inner city teacher. He wrote me and says, David, the people that I'm with, Jesus isn't even on their radar screen. God isn't even on the planet as far as they're concerned. And you've been telling me since I was a little boy, I can make an impact for Jesus by living in the marketplace. I don't see how. I'm in the middle of 8 million people. It doesn't seem to me like anybody back here in, in the Big Apple even has heard about Jesus or cares about him, except as a cut's word. What do I do? Maybe you feel that way. How are we going to make an impact? It's a big question. That's the issue I want to raise today. How in the world can you make an impact in school? How can you make an impact on the construction site? How can you make an impact in your home? How can we really attract people to Jesus? Now, we all come up with an idea, well, we need to have more Billy Graham crusades, and that's great. We need to have more radio programs, and that's great. We need to have more high-profile media people, and that's great. But I want to share with you, I believe that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 tells us why the early church, the first century church, turned their world upside down for Jesus. And I've got incredible news for you. Every one of you, every one of you have the abilities, the gifts, to do what I'm going to tell you today. To be honest with you, not all of you can speak like Sean Hannity. You're not quick. You weren't raised back in New York and Long Island. You don't even have that New York, New York accent. You don't like debate like he does. So you're not going to make it as a talk show host. You're, you just don't have it. Even if, you, if you're liberal, you can go with your favorite liberal guy. Most of you don't have that kind of quickness. If I put a radio mic before you, you'd be scared to death. So you don't have the ability to do that. Most of you aren't going to speak like Billy Graham. Probably nobody else in all of history has spoken quite as eloquently as he has from a human standpoint in many ways. So most of us aren't going to be able to do that. But what I'm going to tell you to do is every single one of you can do it, and you can do it this week. It begins in Ephesians 6 with the Apostle Paul talking about what the slaves need to do. Now what we can do this morning in our society is we don't have slaves, praise God. And that's because of evangelical influence in our society. In England, a man named William Wilberforce spent his entire life in Parliament calling for the British Empire to outlaw slavery. So some of you that are in politics and you get discouraged, I want you to know that William Wilberforce spent his entire life, he brought up the anti-slavery petition in Parliament. It was voted down, it was voted down, it was voted down over 20 times. And four days before he died, Parliament voted to outlaw slavery throughout the British Empire. By the way, they did it without a war, and they did it several decades before we fought the Civil War. And that's the influence that a believer can have. So that's a really powerful thing, and believers really did eventually have a tremendous influence against slavery. And that's why most of you don't think about it all being a slave. But I want you to stop and think about it. In some ways, some of you are slaves. For example, some of you work for, you know, TXI. And when you go to work tomorrow, you don't say, well, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do today. You know, you walk into your shop and say, well, I, you know, I just thought I would take these tools. I go to this section of the plant. I'm going to do what I want. No, it doesn't work like that. You have a superintendent that comes in and they say this and this and this. You're going to do this at 8.30. You're going to do this at 9.30. You're going to do this at 11 o'clock. And you're going to take a lunch break from 12 to 1. I know exactly what your schedule it takes. I, but when I work construction, I got news for you. I didn't decide at all what I was going to do. A big old rugged guy like Pat down here would, Pat doesn't do this anymore, but it maybe it maybe does. He had a big chaw of tobacco in his cheek and he'd spit it right close to me and I'd have to dodge out of the way. And then he would tell me what I was going to do all day long. I was a total slave. How many of you feel a slave that will work? 
Anybody here feel like you're working for a, a master? Yeah. See, there's a lot of this. Even in our modern society, you become a slave of your boss. So if you change slave to employee, you'll get an idea. Now, you live in a work environment where the basic idea is they're the enemy and you're supposed to, to do everything you can to be rebellious and to not listen. And if you can get out of work, that's a real plus. And I want to share with you today that you are missing, if that's your attitude today, for one thing, you're going to get fired from one job after another, and you're going to end up probably drinking like a skunk when you're about 51. You're going to think that the whole world sucks, and you're going to be a disaster. Some of you, in fact, today are losing one job after another because you haven't learned a basic principle. You are the employee, and you're supposed to do what the employer asks you to do. Now, this all began in our society, like when you're little kids, remember we learned in Ephesians 6, children obey your parents in the Lord. We think that's a disaster thing to learn. So little kids don't need to learn to obey anymore, but I got news for you. The way the real world works, if you're in a position where you're underneath somebody, when your authority tells you to do something, the way the real world works, you're supposed to do what they tell you to do. And if you don't do it, you know what's going to happen? You might feel free and fancy free, but you're not going to get paid anymore because you're out. Anybody ever have that happen? Look at Ephesians 6. The Apostle Paul said this. Slaves, so you'll understand, in the first century, don't automatically jump to American slavery because you need to have a better picture. For one, it's not racially oriented. All different races become slaves. In the Roman Empire, you could be slaves because the Roman legions mauled all your country and took a bunch of captives, and you became a slave. In the Roman Empire, you could get in really bad debt, so a whole lot of us could be slaves in the Roman Empire, and you would, you would become a slave for about seven or eight years, and then you could get free. So you, and you also had a lot of doctors, teachers, different medical people, nurses, the, the equivalent of that kind of a profession, household managers, administrators, bankers, all of those kinds of people in the Roman Empire could be slaves. And also I want you to know that in the first century, even the slave revolts, there's no idea at all about abolishing slavery. It's only been within the last 200 years in Western societies that the powerful influences I would hold of biblical principles, some of the principles that I'm going to talk to you about today, took a hold so strongly socially that people began to think about abolishing slavery. So if you students, if you go away to university and they tell you, well, Christianity is the biggest retrograde thing imaginable, and why would you ever want to be a believer? Because it's a bunch of authoritarian power stuff, and they've never had any influence. What you really do is want to be free. You need to study the history carefully. Because what you're going to find out is your rights as women started out, women's rights started with women that are just like you women sitting here today. The women's movement in America started by evangelicals getting exercised about the worth of a woman made fully in the equal equality with God. It was, if you look back at the period before the, the war between the states, the Civil War, you're going to find out that it was believers like yourself, like Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. She was, her daddy was one of the prominent pastors back on the East Coast, and she wrote that book as a woman because she got exercised about a, a slave was made in the image of God. 
So you're from a great heritage. Don't just listen to what someone's telling you about how diabolical the influence of Jesus is in a culture, because it just isn't true. The Apostle Paul back in the first century, speaking to a totally different kind of slavery in many ways, begins to put some time bombs into the structure that eventually brought freedom. But he does it totally different than the way we would do it. The way we produce change is we rise up and we say, I'm going to do it my way, and we force, we use power. And what happens when you do that is what happened in the United States. 600,000 men and women died in the war between the states, and Martin Luther King, 100 years later, is still at the Lincoln Monument trying to get our culture to respond to what we supposedly decided in a war where 600,000 people died. Because power doesn't change anybody from the inside. You can force people with might and by physical abuse of them and and just forcing them that way. But Jesus knows something even more powerful, and you're going to decide in your own life whether you believe this or not. Jesus said that the way you really change people is from within, and the way you do it is not with power, but with servanthood. Did you hear what I just said? Some of you wives want to change your husband, and you're ticked as can be in your relationships, but what you're doing, you're in a power game with your husband. Who's going to be the boss? And you use power on him. You use, you use all kinds of techniques to get him to do what you want him to do, and he never does it. You get angry and angry every day, and eventually you'll get divorced. Because your anger will get too hot, you've got to get away from each other. And you know what you haven't learned? You haven't learned that there's real power in letting Jesus be your Lord and relaxing in his love and his grace. And then you can do something incredible. You can obey. Notice what he says to slaves. He said to slaves in the first century, the number one thing he says, first of all, what I want you slaves to do is, slaves, I want you to obey your earthly lords. The word masters there is lord. The same word that's used for Jesus. And Paul has a play on words here. If you're a slave in the first century, he's not saying that your master's your lord. He's saying Jesus is your lord. We're going to learn that in this passage. But you live under earthly lords. And what you need to do is connect with your heavenly Lord so that you relate correctly to your earthly lords. Look what he says. You need to be obedient to your earthly masters. With fear and trembling is what he says. The very first thing I want you to think about is the power of reverent obedience. Now, interesting enough, you say, well, what Paul is saying here is that slaves need to be, like, with fear and tribulation. They need to be scared to death of their masters. That's not what he says. This phrase, fear and trembling, if you look through the Old, the Old Testament scriptures, for example, where it's used, it's usually used of your standing before God. You should have fear and trembling before the Lord God of the universe. So this real reverence, in fact, this is Paul's way of talking about when you're faced with God's omnipotent power, when you're faced with God's might, it just drives you to your knees because it's so awesome. It's so powerful. And if you've ever seen incredible power, one of the ways you'll respond is you'll just shake. Some of you, if I got you really close to Niagara Falls and put you right on the edge of the walkway there and the gates that are keeping you from falling in the water, and I had you lean over holding onto you so you wouldn't hurt yourself or jump, but as you just stared there looking at the water, some of you would respond by trembling because of the thunder and the power. And that's just a little bit of God's creation. I'm trying to help you understand what Paul's talking about when he talks about fear and trembling. Now, what he's saying here is that we capture a vision of the awesome, omnipotent power of our Heavenly Daddy. And that causes us to be obedient 
to our earthly masters. Now, that's an idea that hardly any of Americans know anything about. See, most of us aren't obeying. And most of us aren't connecting with what it really means to have a trembling relationship before the might of God. But I want to challenge you to begin to enter into that. The very first thing Paul's introducing you to is the idea of the, the awesome power of reverential obedience. Some of you, your work is going terrible. You have a boss that's disrespectful, curses like crazy, doesn't believe in Jesus. It's a totally secular environment. You hate it. You hate everything about it. A bunch of people at work are, are rebelling. You know, they're thinking about having a mutiny at work. And I want to challenge you today. I want to challenge you this week to decide. Jesus is my master. And so this week, I'm going to go to work. And when my boss asks me to do something, you know what? Incredibly, I'm going to do it. Did you hear what I just said? Dallas-Fort Worth has, has the most eloquent preachers that I've ever known. Chuck Swindoll's in the area. Dr. Graham is just down the street from Chuck Swindoll. You can throw a rocks up in that area of Dallas from one brilliant, oratorical, marvelous Bible teacher. But I've never lived in an area where what we say about Jesus has so little effect upon the way we really live day by day. We live in the most churched city and area, metropolitan area in the world. And yet very few unbelievers are impressed. And I want to tell you why. Because we don't obey our bosses. If we're born-again believers, it doesn't make a blot of difference. If our boss asks us to do something, we're just as disrespectful. In fact, some of us even say, well, I need to have my quiet time instead of putting in the window as a carpenter because I love Jesus. And so when we shouldn't be putting in the window, we're having our quiet time. And then we can't figure out why we get fired. Now, I want you to begin to think about this. I really believe this with all my heart. I think that everything I teach this morning... If you go out this week and Joseph here works at Walmart in a horrible time all night long, if Joseph leaves here and his boss tells him to take some vegetables and put them neatly on those shelves at Walmart so when people come in at 3 o'clock in the morning, they'll be able to get cucumbers. And Joseph says, forget it, man. And he doesn't obey him. Then I believe that, that everything I've said this morning is gone. Everything. It's all gone. And that's what I want you to capture a glimpse of. But if Joseph smiles like my Porter John guy, and he's obedient, says, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, and he whistles and he does it with the power of the Spirit, I believe that a time bomb for the Holy Spirit begins to be unleashed in Walmart, even in the middle of the night. I really believe that. Right now, what I want you to be thinking of, what is your boss asking you to do that you can't stand to do? And what is the Holy Spirit telling you? That you're a child? It's the end thing as a teenager to not listen to parents. I know that. I was a teenager and I've worked with teenagers all my life. So your boss is your parents right now. So what the Apostle Paul is saying, you say, man, Dave, you've got it right on. I feel like my parents slave sometimes. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is you can unleash a time bomb in your home if you're obedient to your parents. It's the power. It's the power of reverential obedience. How does this obedience express itself? It says with sincerity of heart, as you would obey Christ. You say, well, Dave, how in the world do I do this? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. is Some of you have an earthly master that really does, you know what? They're just a lousy leader. They're terrible. So you can come up with all kinds of excuses why you don't need to listen to them. 
The Apostle Paul grabbed it away from you because he says, I'm not really asking you to obey your earthly leader directly. I'm asking you to obey your Lord. I'm asking you to serve Jesus. And I want you to really hang on to that because that's what's going to hold everything I say to you this morning together. The Apostle Paul is saying that none of you are really a slave because we've learned in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 that you've all become the sons and daughters of God. You are heavenly royal people. Even in the first century, if you were a slave, the Apostle Paul had already spent five chapters teaching you that you're really the son and daughter of God. Now, when you've got that kind of elitism and that kind of, of divine inheritance, then you're secure. And so you're able to listen to your heavenly Lord. And when your heavenly Lord says, okay, I want you to to put in that door, your superintendent says, put in the window, put in the door. So you're able to do it, even if it includes cleaning portage on. Because your heavenly Lord tells you to do it. And it's connected there. And what he says, you need to do it with sincerity of heart. And the next thing I want to talk to you about is what I call soul work. And soul work is what we have very little of in the United States. If you think about your workplace, the basic idea is that you put in your eight hours, you punch your clock, you get your job done, and then you leave. That's not soul work. If you're from an African-American culture, to sing with soul, soul music, soul music is not someone that gets in and they kind of play the piano and, you know, who cares, I pray the night. It's, It's not like soul music is not a little kid taking piano lessons whose mom says play the piano you're supposed to practice your lessons they go blah blah they play all the scales and they do it for 12 and a half minutes they go mom i put in my time i leave that's not soul music no little kid ever played soul piano like that what an african-american means by soul is that when you do it It comes from the core of your being. It's what's wrong with most of us Caucasians. Because we don't do music and and we don't sing. We don't do the arts very much with soul. We're a little bit afraid of it, to be honest with you. We keep it all bottled in. We're going to do this with soul. It means it comes from very guts of my being, the very heart of my being. And then I let this reality, this sincerity of heart, this purity, this truth, just come flowing out. In fact, I use this illustration because soul really began with African Americans who came to know Jesus and they were in the pits of life because with American slavery wasn't like in any way, it wasn't like Roman Greek slavery. It wasn't all different classes. They weren't teachers and stuff. A lot of them had been stolen from their homeland, busted up families and they sweat all day long in horrible situations And often they were whipped and everything else. Terrible situation. You know where soul music began is some of those African-American believers found Jesus. And they found freedom in Jesus. And they began to sing, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. And they believed it. And they began to work. One of the richest sources of music and spiritual influence and relationship. Tony Evans speaks with soul. Tony speaks with soul, and it's all flowing from the agony of slavery that flows in his veins down through his inheritance. The Apostle Paul is saying this, what he told first centuries is, I want you to work for your master with soul. Like when your master asks you to serve that meal, I want you to serve that meal with soul. When he asks you to, to clean up a room that's all filthy dirty, I want you to do it with soul. 
That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It uses the word out of your soul from the depth of your being. Another word that's used is heart, but I love the word soul because it gets across what I'm talking about. I want to ask you a question. As a believer, are you teaching school if you're a school teacher here with soul? Are you an engineer? Do you do it with soul? Gerald's a dentist. Many of you are professionals, doctors, lawyers, and dentists, judges. Many of you work for GM and all those different plants, Every, all different kinds of work. And I want to ask you the question, the Apostle Paul is saying today, do you do it with soul? And you say, well, Dave, I don't, my soul's run out. I don't have it anymore. And that's the sweet method to have for you today is Jesus fills me with soul when I don't have any soul. Jesus fills me with heart when I don't have any heart. Because this whole passage is rooted in, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's telling us about the power of soul work and the power of reverential obedience. He said you need to do it just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. See, when you're working with soul, you don't work just because someone's watching you. Some of you have gotten in the habit, and I can easily do this, that you you work hard when someone's overseeing you. If someone's watching you, you do a really good job. Or some of you do work, like if you're a student, you do things to, to win your teacher's approval. You work for your teacher, and your fellow students hate you because you're a you-know-what kind of a person. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, you don't do your work to catch someone's eyes. If you're a student, you're a soul student. You study hard because you want to learn the truth. You want to learn what reality is. You want to bring glory to the Lord Jesus because you're doing this ultimately for him. What's going to change the Midlothian, Dallas, Fort Worth area? What's going to change your whole area is if you leave here today and you get close to God and Jesus begins to fill you with his Holy Spirit so that it changes you the way that you clean porta johns, then we're going to have a moving in the Spirit like we've never seen. And God's going to touch unbelievers' life. What does my nephew need to know about touching those secular kids? In the inner city, a bunch of brilliant college students that are trying to teach in the inner city. Dave, what can I do? What I told them is be quiet and live and be a great teacher for the glory of Jesus. Be a soul teacher. And don't be quick to speak at first. The truth of the matter is, he doesn't think that those students have ever heard of Jesus, but if you ask them about right-wing Christianity, they'll know all about it. The truth of the matter is he'll find over a few weeks. You can ask those students, have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? They say, yeah, I've heard of the four spiritual laws. Our society is soaked with the gospel message. As I drive up from you know, Texas to the East Coast, you just flip through your radio, you can hear the gospel over and over again. But what our society needs to see is they need to see the good news. They need to have people fleshing out the good news. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. He doesn't say we don't speak with our lips, but he says we need to get it connected with our life. And the Apostle Paul is saying that we obey them, not just speak when their eyes upon us, but we realize that we're the slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. There's that soul work. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. And so we ask the question, why should we do that? Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he's done, whether slave or free. You say, well, Dave, you know, I work hard for my boss. I try to be respectful of my husband. I try to be obedient to my parents. All this stuff you've been talking to me about, it doesn't work. My parents are still idiots. And my husband's still a jerk. And it's not working. Well, then you're still serving yourself because that's how you're evaluating. Does it bring me what I want? 
The Apostle Paul says, no, wait a minute. One day, we're going to all stand before Jesus. And you know what? When you stand before Jesus, every one of you are going to be blessed for the things you did that are good. I love Hans. Hans had the doctorate degree from Dallas Seminary, but I'm going to remember that when the, when the Port of John of Midlothian Bible Church was dirty, Hans cleaned it. Do you guys realize how many times Hans unstopped the bathroom of this church? That's a servant. That's a man that understands this path. She's a slave of Jesus. At Dallas Seminary, I never had a course. Pastoral ministry in the bathroom. In fact, I work with a lot of men and women. They want to get far away. They want me to teach them to preach. Dave and I, they want us to teach them to preach. They want us to teach them how to study Greek. You want to really influence people for Jesus, learns how to clean bathrooms. Husbands, children. Jesus produces servants, slaves. When I drove all the way to the East Coast, got at 7 o'clock in New Haven, big budget truck to unload, stopped over at the American Chinese guys that were overseeing a beautiful couple that were overseeing all this real estate property. Josh had rented the apartment from them and they oversee it. We drove the truck over. The lady came over and showed Laura all about the apartment. A few, about 45 minutes later, her husband showed up. If there's one thing I hate doing, it's cleaning Portageons and next on the list is moving somebody. How many of you like moving somebody? If I see a neighbor with a budget truck moving in my street, I have a million counseling appointments and study things that I need to do. This Chinese-American came up, tapped me on the shoulder in the back of the truck and says, I'll get that. And he grabbed the end of a heavy dresser and he carried it into the apartment. You know, when he did that, I didn't even know. I was thinking, boy, we need to really pray. Josh and Laura will be able to win this couple to Jesus. The next day I found out, and I was already had deep suspicions about this, the next day I find out that they were going to the, the Baptist church there and they already knew Jesus. But without him saying a word, you know what? There was a really good chance that he knew Jesus because Jesus' people help people move when they don't have to. We close with this. You say, well, great, we all need to be servants. What about us as masters? A lot of you aren't employees, you're employers. You're employers. What did the Lord tell you? What do you need to do with an employer? Look what he said. He kind of turned everything on its ear in our society. He says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Everything that I've taught you as a slave, as a slave of Christ, if you're a master, then you become like a slave. And that turns everything on its head. But I want to challenge you. Some of you as employers are having a really hard time motivating your people. None of them want to listen to you. None of them get the work done. And I want to tell you how you can change it all around. And the more that you stay distant from them, the more that you don't do the hard jobs, the more that you keep telling someone else to do it, it's not going to happen. So you know what the Lord says to you as an employer? How many of you have ever gone into Brookshire's and watched the manager of the store bagging groceries and carrying them out. Everyone that's ever seen it happen, raise their hand. You know what? That's the mark of an employer that knows Jesus. 
It's also the mark of a leader that will really get the job done. And that's what Paul is saying here. You see, if I'm the manager of Brookshire's, I sit in an office with a coat and tie on and tell them how to bag groceries. And I have them do it. But Jesus says, no. If you're a master, then you're just like the slave. You do what the slave does. And real leaders, real influencers learn that they do all the menial things, all the little things. The other thing the Apostle Paul says, he warned us as bosses about threatening. He says, do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no favoritism with him. Some of you as bosses think the way you motivate people is you get mad at them. You threaten them. Some of you do that as parents. Some of you do it as husbands. And some of you are going to go out tomorrow morning and you're going to threaten everybody you work. And i got to share with you, I can preach till I'm blue in the face. we got a lot of managers in our church, a lot of bosses. And I can speak from now until eternity, but if you as a boss go to work tomorrow, and let's suppose you're in the, instruction, the construction industry. Pat will tell you, you can ask me after the service. I, that's where I worked for a couple of years. The way that you motivate people in construction is you get mad at them. Nobody does a blessed thing till you're really mad. And Pat and I used to have long talked about this. It's not until a superintendent just curses somebody out. Isn't that right, Pat? I mean, that's one way to play the game. That's one of the ways. It's one of the models. In fact, it's a very dominant model to get things done. And one of the things that Pat and I have worked on by the power of the Spirit is, is there another way? If you're a construction superintendent, I'm just trying to be really honest with you today, and that's why I'm picking different ones of you out. Tomorrow, I want you to go out, and I want the Spirit of God to make a difference. In construction, there's one group of leaders. Everything is lies and everything is threats. And nothing happens till it happens. If you become part of that system, then we all go to hell together. Whatever field you're in, you say, well, Dave, you don't understand the way it works. This way, I do understand the way it works. I understand exactly the way it works. I haven't lived in an ivory tower somewhere. I live with real people. I hear all the gunk. I know what you're facing tomorrow. And I understand this is the way the system works. What I'm challenging you to do is I'm part of another system. Brothers and sisters, we are part of another kingdom. And our kingdom works totally differently. Way back in the 1860s, Dostoevsky, long before the Bolshevik Revolution, Dostoevsky had a dream when masters would learn to be servants and servants would learn to be reverential and obedient. And in the Brothers Karamazov, he tells a story of masters and servants that learned to apply what I've shared with you today. And he said that that would only happen we could bring Jesus' kingdom. But he talked about a threat. He talked about a world that would be all built upon science and where Jesus would be absent from the marketplace and where Jesus would be absent from government. And Dostoevsky in the 1860s, long before the communist government in Russia said, if we try to build a society on science alone, it will be blood upon blood upon blood. Those words scared me when I read them. Little did he know that millions of Russians would die because the elite of the society would decide we don't need God. We don't need Jesus. And we're going to build it on power. 
And like a prophet, Dostoevsky's prediction came true. But praise God, we're still here. Dostoevsky believed that Jesus could be the answer for Mother Russia. And he believed that just normal people, just normal Russians could have a movement of the Spirit. And through the movement of that Spirit, the movement of Christ's likeness, they could change not only Russia, but they could change the world. Well, I don't believe the Lord Jesus wants to do that just through Russian followers of Jesus. I think he wants to do it through worldwide followers of Jesus. Are you going to be a part of that? Have you learned the power of being Christ's slave, whether you're an employee or an employer? I closed with this. I sat down with some relatives a couple nights ago. A guy told me he was raised in a church like ours. There were big bosses in the church. His dad worked for one of those big bosses right in his church. Those big bosses preached the gospel, witnessed to their employers. But his father retired after working at that company with about $700 in his pocket. The boss in the church retired with millions upon millions upon millions. They said they had profit sharing. But there were whole areas of the company where a million dollars were flowing in that were totally kept separate from the Joe Blow normal employee in that company. And this relative of mine is, is now retired himself, but I could still feel the hurt in his voice that he shared about his precious dad. His dad, as a humble believer, was submissive to his boss, wouldn't leave his boss, worked hour after hour every day because he wanted to follow what I shared. And that believing boss had this big external testimony, but it never got on. Let's suppose that I was an employee in this company. Am I being treated right? Would I be feeling that my boss really cared about me? And brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is saying to us as evangelicals, this is much bigger than just being up at a promise keeper movement. Or giving our testimony in books that go out everywhere. If you're a boss this week, this is what I want you to ask yourself. Jesus is evaluating my managing relationships. Is he pleased? What am I doing that he blesses? What do I need to change this week? If you've been threatening, I want you to say, Holy Spirit, I'm going to change my bossing style. And I'm going to become a servant kind of a leader. It's become the most avant-garde thing in management techniques today, but Paul was teaching it 2,000 years ago. As a boss, will you change? If you're an employee today, what are the areas this week where you can be obedient? None of you think of cleaning Porta John for Jesus. Some of you, maybe that's your job. You go around with your truck like this guy I shared, and maybe you play the loud music and you have tattoos all over your arms. I could care less. I'll hug the man that I started out with today as my brother in Christ any day of the week. Because if we can finally get some Portage on cleaners to smile and take their Clorox out and scour Portage on for the glory of God, then nobody will ever be able to say, your Jesus is a figment of your imagination. He is non-existent. I'll say, no, he isn't, because you just saw him. You just saw him.